Jennifer Fraser is author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. She has a PhD in comparative literature and The Bullied Brain is her fourth book. She draws on medical, neuroscientific, and neurobiological research to examine what happens to brains that are bullied and abused. Jennifer is an award-winning educator and works as a coach, consultant, and international presenter. This podcast is a dialogue that works in the first season like a coaching session. Eric shares his childhood experiences of being abused, and Jennifer discusses the implications for brain and for recovery. Our goal is to use Eric's childhood abuse like a case study as most people don't learn about their brains or about how abuse impacts their brains. The research is clear that the brain is innately wired to repair and recover when we know the harm done and the evidence-based practices to heal. This is the focus of Jennifer's book, but it comes to life in a podcast as Eric bravely walks us through the abuse done to him and his many strategies for healing his neurological scars. For all those who have suffered bullying, abuse, and trauma, join us to look at it through the lens of brain science and learn ways to repair the harm done. Welcome everyone. This is the inaugural episode of The Bullied Brain with Eric Jorgensen and Jennifer Frazier. Jennifer Frazier is the author of the book by the same title. We're going to be doing a bit of a, an experiment, so to speak. I'm, I've agreed to turn the microphone over to Jennifer and let her take this where it's going to go. And I'm going to let her share a little more, more of the, the vision for this podcast. We're just open to whatever feedback you get as we move along. I expect just because the nature of starting things, the first three to five episodes might be a little choppy, but I think we'll get in our groove by episode six, six and beyond. And with enough of that, me babbling, I'm going to turn over to Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you. And let's go. I am completely disagree with you that this is going to be choppy. I think we're going to be really rather compelling right outside the gate. So just a bit of background about me and how Eric and I started talking about this and why we decided this idea might actually be helpful for people is I've been writing and researching the bullied brain and the subtitle is heal your scars and restore your health. And I've been working on it for years and it came out in April, 2022, and people are having a pretty powerful reaction to it. And what, what makes it different or what makes it potentially useful and why Eric and I wanna try this experiment is that the book is designed for you to heal your scars and restore your health using evidence-based practices grounded in brain science, essentially. And there's a huge amount of research out there and it's not reaching you know me as a mother it's not reaching eric as a father or eric as somebody who suffered abuse and trauma in childhood it's not reaching me who was a teacher for 20 years in the classroom and i could have really used the science to have been a better teacher for my adolescent students and my 20-somethings at university so we just thought okay well we have this knowledge not everybody's a reader. Not everybody feels comfortable reading a book necessarily. And it can be tricky to somehow figure out how to apply it to your own life. So we thought we would do a podcast where we are working together. We're going to use Eric's life as, as an example of how I work with coaching clients. So I coach people who are struggling in their lives to basically have the neural networks or the brain networks that that they want. So to give you a super simple example, I've got the brain network that I get up every single morning and I have a piece of chocolate cake and four espressos for breakfast. Well, that's not healthy. So I don't really want that neural network, but I grew up that way. It's so entrenched in my mind. It's, I can't imagine doing anything differently when I try to change, it's difficult, etc. Well, you actually can change that neural network and every other, other one in your brain considering we have much more serious and harmful neural networks that we might have had from our past or from our present even. So Eric and I want to do an experiment where we use him and, and we build on the fact that he's at a, a point in his life where he wants to do even more work on recovery from a really traumatic childhood. And Eric's childhood is so traumatic that I feel like it would give people hope to know that if he can succeed and he can not pass on the really harmful behaviors to people in his life, including his son, well, then there must be hope for the rest of us. If he can overcome it and he can heal his scars and restore his health, why can't we? 
And so we want it to be empowering and inspiring the sciences and having somebody be brave enough to share their story and then share their journey. Like, well, it's not going to be perfect. I mean, maybe this is what you mean, Eric, by choppy. There's not going to, there's going to be days when it doesn't work. There's going to be days when Eric says, look, this was the obstacle and I tried, but this week was bad. In fact, I reverted. It was sort of one step forward, two steps back. And then, okay, where do we go from there? And how do we harness the science to address that kind of frustration? And just, just to say before we start, one final thing, this isn't a quick fix. When I work with clients, when I work with organizations that need culture change, it's not quick. You don't just have a workshop and all of a sudden everything's great again. The brain learns by making mistakes and the brain learns by repetition at timed intervals. And we understand those processes when it comes to school or arts, like music or sport. We have children at very young ages practicing, making mistakes, being corrected and advised for years and years and years before they build their skill set. And it's also like getting in shape, which you just don't snap your fingers or go to a workshop and all of a sudden you're in shape. It's hard work. It's daily practice. You have days when you don't want to go jogging because it's raining and you're tired and you'd rather just have your chocolate cake and espressos, but you can't, you have to do it. And every single time you do it, not only are you getting more physically fit, you're laying down a new neural network in your brain that could be seen on a brain scan. You're myelinating or layering down insulation into the part of the brain that says fitness actually is hard and it makes me feel so good. It reduces my stress. I just need to find that energy to go, that activation energy, and I'm going to do it. So sorry for that long-winded intro, but I needed to kind of frame our, our big project, and we both think it's cool. So Eric, is there anything more to add before we officially begin? I do want to share with the listeners that I am seeing a therapist. You know, I've, I've, I've been working with therapists for a couple months, and I did a lot of my own work for good or for bad, I probably could have been a lot further along if I'd seen a therapist much younger. But, you know, in full transparency, in my 20s, I didn't want to change. You know, it really was the death of my wife that, and me making a choice to take her off life support at the age of 38, that was the catalyst for all of this. You know, 37, 38, that was a catalyst for all this. So, and the other thing I want to say is it's interesting to hear you say, that I had an extremely traumatic childhood because to me, I was like, yeah, I don't know if it was all that bad, but <laughs> that's, that's it. I just, I do want people to know, you know, I, I am seeing a therapist. I'm, you know, I, I recognize I'm, you know, that this is not something anybody I think should be doing it on their own. And I also recognize you have to be willing to change. And I was not willing to do that for most of my formative, well, all of my formative years, most of my career in the Navy up right up until I was ready to retire. That's such incredibly insightful and important information. I just want to respond to that. So first of all, I want to say that I know enough about your childhood that if I was somebody who assessed childhoods, yours would definitely have to be quite high on the trauma scale. At the same time as the point you're making that's so important is that we normalize our childhoods. You come into the world not knowing a different family, you come into the world not knowing a different parenting model, you have no concept that what's happening to you is anything other than normal. You think that it's, I mean, you, you're navigating it, you're trying to survive it, you're trying to cope, your brain is trying to figure it out 24-7 and keep you alive, but it's, it's a typical pattern to think that your childhood wasn't that bad and that you don't need help and that there's nothing wrong and your parents were just doing their best and you're pretty sure they loved you. I mean, we say a lot. Well, I, don't, of I don't think either of those things. I don't think my parents were doing their best and I don't think they loved me. Okay. Well there, we could start there with pretty <laughs> major trauma because there's lots of parents out there that make serious mistakes and there is no doubt in their mind or even their children's mind that they were loved. They loved their kids and they were trying their best, but because of the way they were brought up, they make terrible mistakes. You can't even fit yourself into that category. So I think we can, we can unpack the trauma of it and look at it as old people. You know, like I love that perspective. When you're little and you're in it, you're just coping. When you're older and you look back, it's different. And maybe that's what we do with this first episode is we just share 
my childhood, right? I mean, I don't mind talking about it. It, it doesn't have the power to hurt me anymore. You know, it, it's it's actually kind of humorous, some things I look back on, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, I, that's probably, since we've hinted around the edges that I've had this horrible childhood, which I'm going to say, I caught myself and I'm going to finish the sentence anyway. I'm sure there's people out there that have had it worse. And I know this is something that people have been through trauma do, right? And that's why I stopped. But I said it anyway, because I want to acknowledge that's what we do. Of course. And, you know, I think you made another incredibly important point that we should touch on, which is coaching somebody through trauma in the way that I do it is coaching. It's like coaching somebody to be better at a sport. It's like coaching somebody to deal with a work issue. It's not therapy. And working with a mental health therapist is critically important work to do. And obviously, both you and I recommend it. I've seen many therapists myself. I have a traumatic background too that we can touch on at whatever point. Um, not with my family, but with in a school system. And if it's relevant, we can talk about it too. I'm very open to talking about it and I'm still trying to unpack it and explore it. But we can never say that this, us talking and coaching and sharing a bunch of brain science is ever going to be the same thing as working with the mental health professional and it can't replace it. So and it needs to be you, a safe environment. Yeah. And if you do need any kind of help or support, sometimes you have to watch out if you're listening to somebody else's trauma, that it doesn't make you revisit yours or make you feel panicky. Like it's all about, as, as you say, Eric, safety. So if this is going to be traumatic conversations for people, then you got to ensure you're safe. Yeah. You have a network and you have a professional, if that's a counselor, if that's what you need as well. Yeah. And for context, we are going to be talking about physical and emotional abuse, verbal abuse. Yeah. Okay. So on that note, that that was actually what I was going to start with. I wanted you to give us, you know, sort of the the main memories from from as early as you can, like the first memory of the of the big events where looking back now, you can say that was abusive. I felt traumatized ultimately. Just give us kind of the big picture of it. And then I have some things I want to say about it. I'll try. It all kinds of blends together. Like I don't even have any major events. I can tell you I don't celebrate holidays anymore because my memory of holidays in general are my mom getting pissed off and my dad hitting me or hitting my brother and I or, or doing whatever just to keep her happy and calm. So my mom was diagnosed bipolar. She was, in, she was institutionalized for a while for suicide watch. She's dead now. I don't know how many years it's been since she died. That's one of the things I chuckle about because I'd gone up for the memorial and I thought my brother wanted to celebrate. So I was going up and with the mindset of, hey, we're going to celebrate the bitches dead. Yay. And yeah, no, he didn't didn't have the same memory. And it was an awkward weekend. But the I mean, just in general, it was growing up and hearing, you know, we wish you'd never born my parents tried the silent treatment for a lot of for, a, for i don't know how long it was but i remember that where you know they would get mad at me so they would just wouldn't talk to me you know i don't remember a lot of physical contact unless it was hitting or punching or you know twisting my arm or, or you know I've, I've been in the emergency room a lot of times in high school i would tell people i got in fight with my brother or something and you know because i'd be on crutches or i would have my arm in a, a splint and I would say, well, you know, my brother and I got into a fight or something. And it was usually my dad, you know, did something, you know, and, and the emergency room got to the point where they're asking, well, is there anything going on at home? And I'm like, no, there's nothing going on at home. You know, because if it's this bad in, in a place like this, how much worse is it going to be somewhere else? You know, I thought about running away. I ran, you know, I tried to run away, but I didn't really know what I was doing. So, you know, where am I going to go? Right. I do remember like some of the high points, I guess. And it's kind of funny that I think they're high points. Like, I remember people trying to bully me. You know, I, I remember back in the day when I was little, little, you know, you're riding on those three wheel things, Hot Wheels or whatever they are. You know, they had the big wheels in the back and you kind of pedal them. And I remember this group of like four or five kids got around me and they just wanted me to tell me, tell them my name or something. I don't remember exactly what. And they were all bigger than me. And then one kid got behind me and bit my back so bad that I had to go to the hospital because I had teeth marks all over my back and I was bleeding. And I was so proud of the fact that it didn't hurt enough for me to actually give up my name because I'd been through worse at home. And I'm like, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, that's not normal, Eric. But the fact that I was like, okay, if this is all you're doing, 
this doesn't even hurt. I mean, come on, I've been through a lot worse. And, you know, by this time I was probably, you know, what, maybe five or six, if you're riding those, those things, right. You know, I, I remember another time I was riding my bike and I, well, there've been a couple of times where I've broken bones and I didn't want to tell my parents because I meant a trip to the emergency room, which meant, you know, they're going to have to pay out of pocket or whatever. It was a stressful event because it was going to cost them money and they were going to be pissed off at me. So I would just go until, you know, three, four days until I couldn't hide it anymore because the swelling got so bad and I couldn't, I couldn't move my hand or my fingers, couldn't feel my fingers. And then I would be like, okay, well, you know, somebody would, usually somebody saw it before and, and brought it up. And then I'm like, yeah, I think something happened and I would have to go. You know, I've had frostbite where my toe was black because I was afraid of going home without my brother, you know, because I was afraid I was going to get beat. You know, I, I broke my brother's thumb in a pillow fight because we, I would just bunch of pillows. So it was like this little rock. So my dad beat the hell out of me because I broke, because I did something to my brother. It was a lot of the, you know, if you're going to cry, we'll give you something to cry about, you know, so you just get used to, you know, physical pain is just, it's nothing. Like in the Navy, I would, I, I would do get cavities filled without Novocaine because I was just faster. I'm like, you know, I don't, you know, it's not going to hurt that much. I mean, geez, it's temporary. You know, that's the thing, right? Pain is temporary. No matter how much it hurts, you're either going to kill me, in which case I'm not going to hurt anymore, or the pain is going to stop, in which case the pain is going to stop. So who cares? It's just pain. You know, I, I, but I don't remember any particular glaring events that are like, oh my gosh, because it was just like a constant thing. Like I was constantly, you know, what am I walking into the house with? What kind of mood is my mom going to be in? There were years where I would, I would flinch at the sound of a belt because my dad would hit me with his belt. You know, we had a German shepherd where she wouldn't let my parents, she wouldn't let my parents cross the threshold of my door, of my, of my bedroom. And I had her for about probably maybe a month. And then they got rid of her because she was a puppy and she was chewing up the wood. But I remember about her, but she was like, the fact it was this long ago and I still remember her. Right. And German Shepherds still have a very special place in my heart. Like I have, a, I have a German Shepherd I rescued now, but she rescued me. Like she adopted me. She would follow me home. And I, I don't know where she came from. I just found her on the street and she would, you know, just kept coming home. And then they eventually got rid of her. I don't think we had her that long, but yeah, I mean, that's the kind of environment. Right. And, and then in, in, in some of the less physical abuse and, you know, besides the, the, the normal, if you will, you know, we wish you were dead or, or whatever. I remember there was a time we went out to dinner with my parents and their friends and I did something to piss them off. So they, I don't remember if they sent me outside or if I said I was going outside, but I didn't have a coat on. It was like, you know, November, December in Massachusetts. So it was freaking cold. And I stood outside the restaurant watching them eat the whole time. Now, if somebody did that nowadays, there'd be no, there'd be no question that they would call the police or, or any of that. Right. But that this was back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and, you know, a different world then. But I stood out in the cold and just let, you know, because I pissed them off or whatever. I don't I don't remember what. I just remember standing outside. I remember an incident in high school. I think it was high school. Maybe it was maybe it was junior high. But I had a crush on a girl. And I, you know, somehow my mom found out about it. So my mom had one of her friends from work call and pretend that this she was the girl and, you know, pretend to call me. And, you know, whatever. Yeah, my mom was a winner. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I don't miss her. I, I'm glad she's dead. I don't hate her anymore. I used to, you know, I, I, I was not a saint. I mean, I remember fucking with her head to get her to think that my dad was actually interested in her sister, you know, when I was like in my early teens or something. And that wasn't fair to my aunt either, but, you know, I just wanted to hurt her and I got really good at hurting her. And, and, you know, like when she died, my dad told me, that she had all the pictures hidden, you know, she didn't have any pictures of me on the wall because she, she, you know, whatever, and things like that. I mean, that was kind of what my life was like. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that's just, I didn't have friends growing up. I didn't want people to come over to my house if I could help it. You know, I didn't really relate to people. Still don't relate to people when they say they want to be around their family. Well, that's, that's a really high overview. So the first thing that I assumed was going to happen based on research is that, and I'm not going to talk about any of the research on this podcast. I'm not going to name the names of the neuroscientists or the trauma experts or any of that. Anybody who's interested in that, it's in the book. 
If you want the research, it's all documented. It's all clearly laid out. What you can trust is that everything I'm saying is grounded in science. So the first thing that I was assuming would happen, and it did, was that, as you can see, you you have all of these, and you said yourself right at the beginning, it's going to be chaotic. I don't really have a storyline for it. It's just all these bits and pieces. And when somebody's being very traumatized, when the brain has been very traumatized, it spends a lot of time in survival mode. When it's in survival mode, which makes perfect sense to us, it's not worrying about things like mem memory. It's not thinking logically. It's thinking a lot about survival and the stress response is very high. And this is why, you know, when you put an abuse victim up on the stand in a courtroom, they sound chaotic and they actually don't remember things very well. They don't remember properly or there, there's no history to it. They, and they'll tell you flat out, oh gosh, I never, so think domestic abuse violence. The woman will say, well, I never contacted him after that terrible time he tried to strangulate me. And then the lawyer will say, oh yes, you did. And this proves that you're not a trustworthy witness. Actually it does. When you've had your life threatened, and you have been under coercion and control by somebody who has psychologically gotten into your head in such an incredible way that you don't even really have selfhood anymore, that's exactly the type, that's a very typical type of behavior and a block that you put around it because you can't bear to remember it. So the first thing that I wanna notice is a lot of this material is in the part of, you've stored it in the part of your brain that is, and you can't really say that, the brain works as a vast, complicated network. I don't want to make it sound super simple, but the truth of it is, it's in a part of the brain where we put trauma, and it's not usually easy to articulate, and it's not easy to put into a historical narrative. And what's fascinating to me is, it's not really the story of Eric, because Eric didn't have a chance to be Eric, because you were navigating survival 24-7 with these incredibly harmful, abusive, destructive people that society would refer to as your parents. So the story of Eric, perhaps you might chart it differently and say it began on the day when you had to make a serious, heartbreaking decision about your wife. It might begin on the day when you started in the Navy and you actually got away from these abusers and you could start to create selfhood then. I mean, and many of us can do that. We can chart, wait a second, what is the first day where I would say, and maybe it happened during the abuse, you have a different series of moments, yes, where selfhood, maybe like the bullying story, it was like, you know, I, I, was, I took these negatives and I turned them into strength. I turned them into an ability to push back. A little bit. And I, I think, I, I don't think we'll get to it today, but I definitely think we need to cover just how fucked up I was as an adult and, and how wrong I was to other people and the things I did. I don't want to say because of the abuse, because I, I own the fact that I played a part. But I think to your point, it was probably before I was a teenager where I was just like, I'm done with, I'm done with these two people. The, the, you know, these two people mean nothing to me. And then, you know, I don't really think I had any deep emotional ties to anybody because I certainly wasn't that close to my brother. I did have one friend in high school that I was really close to. But even that, I don't know that, you know, as teenage boys, I don't know how close you really get. You know what I mean? I, I guess I should probably be very upfront and, and tell people that I have a diagnosis, right? I mean, you know, I, I was diagnosed with having... <laughs> I was diagnosed as having an antisocial personality disorder. Not something I, I thought I was going to say. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not big on sharing that because I think there's a big misunderstanding of personality disorders and mental health in general. But I think to what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast, I think it's important that people know that. And I will. I feel I want to put a caveat in there that the the markers that qualified me for the personality disorder were much more prevalent in my 20s and 30s than they are now. You know, they, they were black and white, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s. So that, to me, is the whole inspiring, empowering part of the work that I do. And it's what fueled the bullied brain. And let's emphasize once again, heal your scars and restore your health. So that diagnosis, we tend to think that when you get a personality disorder diagnosis, someone says, oh, you have an anxiety disorder or 
oh, you have a depressive disorder or you have borderline personality disorder. It's like, oh, this is something within me that answers everything. Oh, it must be my brain or chemicals or this or that. It is something that can happen to you through toxic environment, which is what you've just described for us, like an incredibly toxic environment. And as you've also just outlined, it's something that you, by what you practice in the environments you put yourself in, the work you do with the mental health professional, and also some of the practices around that, that the neuroscientists know about, you can change that. You can eliminate or cure that disorder. You, there's remedies for it. And, and any neuroscientist will tell you that in a flash. It's like, oh, well, just a sec. You have neuroplasticity, which means you have the capacity to change your brain by the environments you're in and the practices you do. All of us can do this. And so in the same way that if your dad broke your arm, what's really tragic to me in these situations is your dad broke your arm or your dad hurt you so badly you were on crutches or your dad did whatever, twisted your arm or hurt you in such a way that you had to repeatedly go to emergency. But at emergency, nobody ever says to you, first of all, they don't actually intervene. You shouldn't be having these kinds of repeat. It should have been flagged. Absolutely should have been flagged. That's abnormal for a child to have these kinds of things. And then they should have started to say to you, okay, well, look, you know, we've, we've mended your your broken arm. We put a cast on it. We looked at it with an x-ray. We saw that it was broken. We knew how to do the proper cast. We've let it rest and recover and repair for six weeks. That's what bones need. Now we're going to do an EEG of your brain. If you've been a child exposed to this kind of physical violence, which is often accompanied by emotional violence, because the person that hits you lacks empathy, it's going to have hurt your brain. So we're going to do an EEG, a scan. It's kind of like an x-ray, but it's a it's an electrical brain scan because we want to know how your brain is coping after so much harm. And then we're going to work with you to strengthen it because we can get your brain better, just like we can heal the bone in your arm. But that doesn't ever happen. And that's not happening now. Didn't happen in the 80s. And it's not happening in emergency rooms now, but it should be. Yeah. I do remember the emergency room doctors, you know, asking if everything was okay at home and you know, with my mom standing right there. And I was more afraid of my mom than it was my dad. I mean, I pity my dad. My mom broke my dad, right? She just, he did whatever it took to make her happy. And now that she's dead, he's lost. He doesn't know who he is, what he, I mean, she just broke him. So I, I don't, I don't think I ever born in animosity towards him. I just, other than thinking he's weak. And that was going back to that switch, right? It was, you know, probably right around the, my teenage years or whatever thinking you know they're weak i can i can totally beat them and that was i looking back on it having this conversation now I, I mean i haven't really explored this before but i think that's probably when i started manifesting this the, the personality disorder too was i don't need anybody in my life they're just going to betray me anyway you know f them i was never the the kid that would hurt animals right i i you know just not who i am but I didn't care about people. You know, I just didn't care. It was almost a game when I was younger about, you know, and I mean younger, you know, not even not even an adult yet about, you know, how to fly under the radar and, and just, you know, not even get noticed and, you know, be that kid that, that you know, just quiet kid. And I would read a lot. I would read, I would take out between 20 and 30 books a week from the library. And I remember a librarian once challenging me and I, cocky son of a bitch that I was is like you don't believe I'm reading this call me on it pick any one of these books pick a couple of the books and I'll tell you what it's about and she did and I did and she left me alone after that but I would I mean I would immerse myself in books because I enjoyed the books more than I enjoyed people and to some degree I think that's still true to a lot of degree because I could learn from the books right and I and, and books weren't gonna cuss me out or and I don't know where I'm going with this Jennifer I mean I'm just you know we agreed I would just kind of free free flow right I mean I don't want to get into the I don't want to get into the the Navy because the 20 years of the Navy should be its own episode and because there was so much learning there but as a kid I didn't have a lot of friends I didn't I remember saying I don't know how to make friends I don't know what they're looking for I don't know what they want from me you know I remember trying to fit in and never seemed like it worked, right? Like I was always out of step, you know, and, and, it, and looking back, it's because I lacked empathy. I didn't, or 
as you pointed out, there's two types of empathy, and I'll let you talk more about that. But I, I lacked the part of understanding what people were feeling because I couldn't relate, right? Like, so it just became like, I became a caricature. So I'd watch TV and see somebody on TV and try to be that character. And then I would start lying. And there was a, a, a lot, a significant portion of, of my younger years where I was pathological. Like, it was easier for me to lie than it was to tell the truth because there was no risk there. You know, if I lied, worst thing they can find out is, oh, well, you know, whatever. But they're not actually learning anything about me. And it goes back to, like I said, my mom found out about something, called, had somebody call and pretend to be that person. Well, fuck, I'm not going through that again. That was embarrassing and it hurt. And yeah, F that, you know, I'm not doing that again. You know, so it was just, it was, I, I think that was where that break started with the personality disorder too, was you can't trust people. You can't rely on people. All they're going to do is try to hurt you. You know, you, you, nobody's ever going to tell you what they're really thinking or feeling, you know, everybody's out for themselves. And some of this, I still believe, and, and I don't know that I, I don't know that I want to change certain parts of this. Right. I think the, I think the personality disorder served me well with some of the stuff I saw in the Navy, you know, because I don't have PTSD because I didn't, I didn't care. <laughs> You know, I mean, it, I, I laugh because I don't know what else I'm supposed to say, what, I'm, what my reaction is supposed to be. And that's been another hallmark through my whole life is I kind of laugh at inappropriate times because I don't really know what reaction people are looking for. And I've learned that if I just sit there and stare at people, that's that's weird. What the fuck is wrong with you, dude? So, you know, I would try to watch movies or shows to see what people are supposed to react to. But Jennifer, TV shows in the 80s are caricatures right they're, they're overinflated that's not how people really act but i didn't know that you know so it was and i don't know where i'm going with all this it just kind of like 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 i said we agreed we would just free flow and, and hopefully other people can kind of relate to this or not um, well hopefully they don't <laughs> i i think that actually what you're saying from my point of view is it's deeply eloquent and it speaks to many things that we don't talk about in society so it's amazing that what you're describing is a child is growing up in a home where the people that should be the protectors should be what a psychologist refers to as the psychological oxygen that you need to grow and breathe. You're not getting it. So it's like you're living in a home without oxygen and every single moment that you are there, you have to find a way to somehow get the air into your lungs or you're not going to make it and you know it. At a very early, early age, you know that you're. It, this is about survival, and you're you're always this close to not making it. Like think of standing outside in the winter time as a child without a coat on. Like, sorry, that's just that's survival. So, what's really interesting to me is the human brain is born, unlike most creatures, vastly incomplete. It's just the way humans are, and it has to do with the size of our skulls and the birth canal and blah, blah. It doesn't matter the science behind it, but the gist of it is, as we all know, but we don't really think about very much, we are born needing. We are so ridiculously dependent on our parents from the age of zero to at least 18. And really the, the brain doesn't mature until 24, 25. So if you're lucky, you get incredibly amazing people to raise you who what they are doing every step of the way is molding your brain. Now, what's fascinating to me is you obviously were born with a pretty exceptional brain. I, you're, I know you're a very humble person, so you're gonna probably cause trouble for that on the podcast, but just roll with it, just roll with it. You obviously are extremely intelligent and hence you were drawn as a child to books. And I just think it's so tragic that there's an opportunity there for a librarian of all people to have created a relationship with you and have gotten to know you as a, as a passionate reader, a voracious reader. But what does she want to do? She wants to make you feel like you, you're not being true or you're not telling the truth or your, your passion for reading needs to be questioned. Like what an opportunity lost for her and, and you as a child in a lot of jeopardy as well. Like, it just makes me feel sad as an educator. Well, but, I think um, some of those because the books I was taking out, right? So I was, you know, I was young and I was reading psychology books and I was reading books on how to teach myself how to speed read. And I was, I wasn't reading C.S. Lewis. I mean, I read Anne Rand. I read, 
you know, I was reading shit that people in college are struggle with reading because, you know, I wanted, I was trying to devour as much as I could. So I, I, I don't know that I blame her. I mean, here's this, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old, because I, I was riding a bike and it wasn't a, it wasn't a 10 speed or anything. It was just a bike filling his backpack with books. And, you know, who does that? Right. I mean, well, I mean, it's a it's a dream person for a librarian who's a true librarian, but whatever. <laughs> what I want to go back to the idea too that there's there's two different timelines at work. There's the his, the history narrative, the logic narrative, the one that's associated with language that's not about trauma, and it's the moments in your life, these kind of golden moments where you really see yourself separate from this incredible background of abuse, and definitely, I think this voracious reader who's fascinated by psychology and wants to learn and wants to devour knowledge about the world, that's an Eric moment. Yes, your parents were whatever they were, like monsters doing their thing, but Eric showed up in that moment and was a voracious reader. And I, I imagine there's earlier ones as well, you know, but that's definitely one. And I think it would be a healthy exercise for individuals who are maybe trying to map out who are they separate from what environment they were brought up in because those two different timelines is really the place where a lot of good work can be done in terms of figuring out your own neural networks and what what's desired for you and what you want to let go of another key thing that you said was you were talking about how you see this as personality disorder the beginning of it as a child and and once again i i really have a negative response in in the medicine to the word disorder because it actually as you described it much more eloquently it wasn't a disorder it was an absolutely normal very intelligent brain reaction to surviving extreme ab abuse when you have no power no protection and of course you believe if this is what parents and home is anything that doesn't have the biological tie probably is going to be more destructive and dangerous. I'm not going to have them take me out of this and put me into something worse. And we know for a fact, many children go out of the frying pan into the fire when they get put into the foster system. You know, like I, I just personally see like very intelligent survival brain things. I don't see disorder. I see you very rationally thinking as a brain, this is my formative years. These are the people that were a very strong influence on me because they were my parents, not that they deserved it, but they were my parents. They shaped this environment. And I learned maybe not to trust, maybe to be afraid of people, maybe not knowing how to make intimate connection. These are, there's no disorder about it. These are all very, very smart reactions. And then freezing, don't let anybody see me is a brilliant, like going back to you respect and have connection with animals, you're describing very smart animal behaviors. If you're a rabbit and you live in the house with two wolves, and that's what you did, you were being raised by wolves, and you're the rabbit and you're dependent on them, you don't want them to see you. Blend in with the grass is a pretty smart move. So I see no disorder here. What I see is an incredibly like hyper-intelligent brain making some very smart decisions about making it alive until getting out. Yeah, and the Navy gave me a way out because I was able to enlist at age 17, leave for boot camp three days after I turned 18. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's interesting that you, you, you mentioned that that reader is is eric because that was how my parents would punish me like they they you know they realized you know at a certain point that hitting him doesn't work he doesn't care anymore yelling at him doesn't work he doesn't care anymore he doesn't have anything he cares about that we can take away i mean and i'm still very much a minimalist so we're going to take away his books and we're not going to let him read and that was how they would punish me is they would take away my books and not let me read and because that was the only thing they could do that that seem to have any impact on me you know it, it, so yeah the books are definitely the books and in, in talking it out with you it's like i understand why i'm so fucking independent like i don't care how much money i make as long as i can have my time and i can just do what i want when i want and it makes sense now because guess what i would do like when i was younger for as early as i can remember i would get on my bike and i would go ride I didn't have, I didn't go hang out with anybody. I would just ride. I would spend all day on my bike riding, you know, and going wherever I wanted to go. And, and that bike was my escape. If it wasn't a book, 
and because in New England, I didn't like winter sports. I didn't, I was never much of an athlete. So reading was like the winter time. Or if I had to go to dinner with my parents, I would literally read a book at the at the dinner table. I would never go anywhere without a book. And I would ride. You know, and, and I look at now, I'm still fiercely protective of my time and my independence and, and you know, much more so than anything else. You have a lot of catching up to do in terms of selfhood, right? A lot of catching up to do in terms of having relationships with other people, if you ever so desire that on your own terms, like from a natural, authentic place, not from a, I have to try and pretend to be someone or have certain reactions that other human beings manifest. But, you know, it's really, it's so fascinating. Like you can go on like YouTube and and watch little children. It's an interesting exercise because, you know, the adoring parent will post a picture of their kid and this will be like, I don't know, a one-year-old or a two-year-old in a diaper. And the kid is watching television and watching, it's one that I've seen. And I, I was really interested because I'm very interested in, in the psychology as you are and how we develop. And this little kid is watching TV, not an actual parent. And he's watching like a, you know, one of those tough man movies where the guy's doing push-ups and he's he's doing this kind of training. And the, the little baby is doing all of it as well to the best of his ability. He is He is mimicking what he sees on the screen. And it's, not only is it just like adorable beyond belief, but it's also psychologically fascinating. And in the research, they find that babies, 40 minutes to an hour after being born, they will start to mimic and imitate behaviors of the powerful adults in the room. And what that tells us about the brain is the brain is born absolutely wired for empathy. And empathy is something you and I'll go back to a lot because it's a, it's a key thing. You were in a house that did not have empathy. So they weren't teaching you, they weren't mirroring for you relationship or love or connection or humor or sharing ideas or sharing experience. You were in a wasteland and not only were you in a wasteland, but the, the two of them were predatory. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. So look at you imitating and it's something you don't like about yourself. You say, I was cruel or I was trying to hurt her with your mother, but what did you do? An identical thing to your mother that she had done to you, right? You learned that lesson. And you know how a kid on the playground, well, back in the day anyways, they, they might have to be more technologically savvy, but in your and my time, back in the day, the bullying kid would say, I'm gonna teach you a lesson. Yep. Sorry, but that's that's adult language. That's the adult that hits or hurts or humiliates the child, whether it's a coach or a teacher or a parent. They're going to teach the kid a lesson. And it's it's all covered up with the notion of discipline. You did something wrong, hence I get to wound you is just ridiculous. You know, I, I think the fact that you're seeing that pattern, my mother hurt me so profoundly. Oh, I learned that lesson. I learned how to hurt people. It's not your fault. It's natural. Your brain is learning. How do you interact with people that should be really close to you? Oh, you, you hurt them. So this could have gone on for you all your life when we wouldn't be having this conversation. You would actually be somebody with a very disordered sense of personality and, and be very harmful to other people that are in your life. And, and I was, you would be I was, I was. And we'll get into that in a different episode. And, yeah. you know, the other thing that I didn't learn that I, I feel like some people just kind of pick up intuitively, maybe not, but is where you fit. Like when you go to a new school, you know, where do you fit in the pecking order? Like, I never understood that. So I never, you know, I would either thrust myself in early on and with disastrous results, as you can imagine, or I would just, you know, fuck it. And and going forward, I would stay on the outskirts. Like, the entire four years of high school, I ate lunch in the cafeteria once the very first day I went. And I was so uncomfortable when I went in there, I swore I would never go back and eat lunch in the cafeteria again. So I never ate lunch for four years in high school because I was so uncomfortable. I would much rather walk the halls and read a book at my next class because I just don't, I never, and I still don't really understand pecking orders. I, I mean, the military was easy because you have chain of command, but as a civilian working at a job, it was disastrous. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's not something I've ever heard somebody talk about before. But of course, I mean, it correlates with the abuse. The abuse is not giving you the mirror. You don't know who you are. 
you don't know how you fit in, you don't know how to establish connection, you can't create a community or a friendship or a bond. So you're just in a sense lost and what is the safest thing to do but roam? If you keep moving, they can't hunt you down. If you keep moving, very animalistic again, right? It's like, stay to the shadows, walk in the tall grass, don't let anybody see me. And it shows you, like our brains are shaped by evolution. Like right. you are a survivor, right? Yeah, and like, I wasn't a target. Like I didn't walk around like a target. So for the most part, nobody fucked with me in high school. Nobody, I, I don't think anybody cared. You know, I wasn't a target. So I wasn't the person that people would come after. You know, I certainly wasn't built like I am now. I mean, I was six, I was probably the same height as six foot, but I was 130, 140 pounds. I was nothing, right? So, but I didn't walk around like a target. So I remember I remember having this conversation with my brother when he when we were younger. I'm like, stop walking around like a fucking target, dude. And and for those of you that don't know what that means, the way I interpret it is if you don't make eye if if you look down, you don't make eye contact, you look away. You, you look you you act very furtive you have hunched over shoulders i identify that as a target right away and i know just intuitively who i can take on who I, and not in a physical sense necessarily just just who can i overpower mentally whatever and i, I don't know if I'm, I'm conveying it properly because i didn't care enough to try to be that alpha male that wasn't why i was using this you know it was it was more of if you know if you act like that, you know this is what happens. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to be like that. So I'm just gonna. You know, I, I don't know how to explain it, Jennifer. It just. It, it's just because I didn't care enough to be the bully back then. I mean, again, we'll get into the Navy and and you know how disastrous that was. But you know, in high school, I just I just wanted to be left the fuck alone. You know, I I think it's a really it's an excellent point to end on. And it's an excellent point to start with next time, because what you're what you're describing, it's funny, I've written an article about exactly that. But from the point of view, like your brother, I, my survival strategy was the hunch shoulders. And I literally talk about the hunching of the shoulders. And really, when you're doing that, think animals, again, you are covering your internal organs, you don't know where the the attack is going to come from, but you do know that you need to be as protective of your insides. It's very animalistic, but an unconscious. So, you know, you, if you look at someone in a school, you look at kids and you see them, the ones that have got the shoulders rounded, that kid is, is conveying to you with their posture that there is in fact something wrong. I mean, my mom would just say to me, your posture's terrible. Fix your posture, stand up straight. Like, look at you, this looks terrible. And she'd wrench my shoulders back. And, and not, not in a mean way, just to kind of like, my daughter certainly won't, like, kind of like you did with your brother, like, pull yourself together, man. You know, it was one of those, like, she was, this is the 1980s when moms who were working, my mom went back to work and they wore the shoulder pads, right? Like, the more we look like a man with huge football shoulders, the more we'll be accepted in the workplace. So she didn't mean it as a mean thing, but she certainly didn't come at, at my situation with curiosity or ask me if I was feeling bad. I mean, she just didn't know. But so I love that idea of that's very animal behavior too. You keep your eyes down. If you if you are encountering an aggressive dog and an aggressive dog as usually is that way because it's being beaten, right? Same thing in the human predator world. You encounter a human who's super aggressive, you chances are awfully good. They come from abuse and they're, they're, they're trigger quick. And you, if you're smart, you don't poke the bear, right? If you, if you don't want to get punched in the face or whatever, you don't bug them. You don't meet their eyes. You don't press their buttons. You just try and kind of navigate your way away from them. We all do things like that all the time, but it's so unconscious, but it's, it's our smart brain keeping us alive. And it's, it's not, you don't want to take that same behavior strategy to everybody. So the nice lady at the coffee shop, you're like, Hey, you're looking at me, you know, like <laughs> we've got to all learn, you know, to navigate social space in complex ways. I want to say one, so I want to talk about identifying with the aggressor. Again, it's another really important survival strategy, which I think you probably really got into in the Navy. And we can talk about that, how when you ended up actually having your power, maybe that's where you started to feel like you fit in. So I want to talk about that. I think it's really important, but I want to end on one last little thing, which is when we talk about Eric moments where you were being you, we've got the bike riding, just movement, like being out, exploring adventure, like just, and, and loving your own company. It sounds to me like 
introvert, like early age, you loved what was in your own head. We've got the books, super important as well. And then the third one we have, well, we have the standing up to bullies kind of at, at a very young age, being able to recognize that, like having a very sophisticated understanding of pain and pain in the body, that's very sophisticated for such a young child. And sad to say, it probably comes from what you had endured, but I love how you take these things and you use them to be these kind of useful life lessons for survival. But the final one that honestly just breaks my heart is the German Shepherd and how she she tried to keep them out of your room. Like even this little creature can recognize that you are in danger from these people and it tried to keep you safe. And you recognize that even as a kid. And of course they had to get the they had to get the dog out because they couldn't afford to have you protected by something as natural and as empathic as a dog. Like how heartbreaking is that? Yeah, and the fact that I mean it, it to this day I still feel it, right? More than I felt losing any person. She was special. And you know, my current my current dog, Diego, he's a German Shepherd. I've had a lot of dogs, but there's something different about German Shepherd. It just I and I think it's because of Christy, my very first one. I think that's why. I mean, I've had a lot of dogs. I mean, I've had dogs that lived 15, 16 years, but it's not the same connection. You know, and I'll always have dogs. I mean, I just, you know, and big dogs. I really like bigger dogs. But that little dog, what it told you as a kid, and you never forgot, and it's these moments that we have to really hold on to through thick and thin, through really just a kind of horrifying existence that you lived through that you can't even see as being horrifying. Like every single story you told me just gives me, makes me feel sick to my stomach. It makes me feel chills. Honestly, it just makes me, it makes me want to take those people, your so-called parents, I want to see them in jail. And I'm not a very vengeful person. I would put them in jail so fast for the rest of their lives. Like, no, you just lost your right to freedom. Like, honestly, it makes me feel really, I feel protective like the dog does. And, you know, for all children, I feel that. And that's it's why honest. I do a lot of the, you know. You know, what's so interesting though, Jennifer, is my mom and my dad don't remember any of this from, from my point of view. Like my mom before went to the grave not understanding why I didn't want to talk to her. You know, and my my dad, you know, he he doesn't he doesn't understand, he doesn't get it. So your parents, from a neuroscience point of view, like if we could put them under an EEG, your parents don't remember because your parents are psychotic. So the psychotic brain, I mean, everybody's quick to label people that are that have been abuse survivors. We don't talk nearly enough about the abusers. Whatever happened to your parents in their upbringing, your mom got bipolar, whatever, whatever happened to them, if we put them under an EEG and so we put them under a brain scan and they, they were shown a picture of two parents taking a little dog away, uh, or German Shepherd protective creature away from a little boy and the boy is sobbing and he's losing this dog that he loves more than anything, their brains wouldn't react. So let's go back to empathy again. Empathy is how you understand how somebody feels and thinks and intends. That's missing in their brains, like dead. It doesn't light up. Your brain would light up, my brain would light up. Their brains don't light up. And the other part of their brain that doesn't light up is emotion. So the emotional neural networks in the brain are dead. They don't light up. People who do cruelty like that to their own child or to any child have no emotions. It's They don't go hand in hand. You can't have emotions you can't have empathy, you can't have guilt and behave repeatedly in that way, okay? So they don't remember because the necessary parts of the brain for normal human action, connection, love, intimacy, care, protection, charity, compassion, it's not there. Guilt even is not there. And next time that we talk or in one of the episodes, I wanna talk to you about what parts of their brain do light up and it's chilling. And again, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't even know why I'm being, I feel defensive about my father a little bit because I don't feel like, like everything you're describing, my mom knew a T. My dad, I think he was the abused and he was in a survival mode. I think he did feel for this, but he was more afraid of my mom. So I don't, I, I absolutely agree. My mom was psychotic or whatever. My dad, I think she just broke him. I, I think and in, in you know, when you talk about people who are narcissistic or the, the the evil triad or whatever, that's what they do, right? They they manipulate and break. And I think that's what happened to my dad. I I I don't 
I don't fault my dad for sticking around because I feel like he was an abusive relationship and he didn't know how to get out. And he grew up in a world where you didn't get divorced. You didn't, you know, that wasn't a thing. And you, and you certainly didn't admit weakness as a man. Every single thing you say is like another episode we need to have. So I want to do an episode on your dad and Stockholm syndrome, because I think it's an incredibly important concept for people to understand. You're already articulating everything about what was going on for him. And it's also how bullying works among children and in the workplace, et cetera. So it's another episode for sure that we need to talk about. Okay. I, 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 I guess this is more interesting. Than I, you know, when you're living it though, Jennifer, I'll tell you, I, I, it's hard to believe we've been talking as long as we have. And if I can share with you, cause I feel like it's important for people to know this part of it too. My my physical reactions as we've been having these because I have been having some physical reactions. I don't I don't think you've been able necessarily to see anything because I've gotten very good at concealing how I'm reacting. But I don't think my face was giving anything away. But the whole time, as of, not the whole time, but there have been times where I've been getting spasms in my thighs, where just my muscles have been tightening and loosening and. And as I'm talking about it right now, they're doing it again, but probably because I'm calling attention to it. And I would get, I was getting very tight in the chest, not hard to breathe tight, more like my pecs were, were tightening, not, not the, not the, I can't breathe type of feeling, but more of the, you know, again, your body tensing up, like you're going to get into a physical altercation. And, but I want to share that with people because I want them to know I'm talking about stuff that happened to me. God, I'm I'm 37, 30. How old? No, how old am I? I'm in my 40s. So this had to have happened, you know, 40 years ago, and I'm still reacting this way just by talking about it. So I, I want to normalize that for people that that maybe they start working with a therapist and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't like this. I don't like the feelings it's bringing up, or or you start to explore something and you're doing EDMR or some other therapy. Just understand it, and I don't know the the psychology behind it, but I just want to share because I feel like if we're going to be transparent, we need to be completely transparent, right? I completely agree, and you just described at least another incredibly important episode because I want to talk about, I mean, in my book, the whole thing, as you know, is I'm trying to help people learn how to align their body, their brain, and their mind. And we have a habit of talking about mind and body and we skip the brain, but the brain is the center of exactly why you're having those reactions and what's going on. And if we start to understand how to manage those brain reactions, then we get much more adept at not having them unconsciously or taking us over when we're, when we're talking about stuff. And, but I, I mean, we need at least an hour to unpack that. It's super interesting. I mean, because in a sense, I, I was on, on a very similar journey. I mean, I, I did for myself in the writing of the book, what you and I are going to try and do now, where I'm going to take you on the journey that I went through. Because the things that you're bringing up, I'm just like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had exactly that reaction. You know, so I will. I'll unpack my own story a little bit so that we can get people to understand why I know what you're talking about. And maybe we end on this. What your body is feeling when we're talking about this and what your brain is starting to, it's the brain is signaling to the body and the body is signaling to the brain. And what the two of them are saying is, I feel panicked. And that's a natural response to abuse. And that's okay. And that's that's why it is hard to talk about. It. And that's why people, when they're working with mental health professionals, find it hard. When I was, I worked with a psychologist, then I worked with two psychiatrists, and then I ended working, this went on for years. And then I worked with another psychologist. And then after that, I worked with a specialized system that I can tell you about that's really fascinating. I found it actually really effective. All of those individuals that I saw for years, including the, psych the two psychiatrists, and this is all through my 20s. And then I stopped after I had my first son. I did no more therapy until there was a crisis with that son where he was being abused, which dredged everything up for me, but I didn't really know it. So even when I talked to the family systems person, not one of those mental health professionals did I tell that from the age of 13 until the age of 17, I was systemically abused by three teachers. Not one. I couldn't even tell myself. I knew it happened. It was sitting beside me all my life in a very 
carefully closed box. I knew it happened. It's not like my memory was gone or anything. It's just that I didn't touch that box. I didn't have the courage to actually unpack it until yet another event happened in my life. Kind of like this dog that followed you home. I had a similar situation, a kind of the universe sent me something that forced me to open it up. And when I did, and when I survived the opening up of that box and I ended up writing a book about it, I'm thankful, like I'm thankful to be on the other side of it now. And then you feel that kind of like, you know, you feel like, you know, a religious, you know, Old Testament prophet, you want everybody to know, yes. <laughs> you know, you want everyone to get better. <laughs> so, yeah. No, that, I, I think that is a good place. And for those that have continued listening, thank you. You know, we, we did try to warn you, this is going to be some heavy stuff, right? I mean, I none of this is scripted. Jennifer didn't really talk, Jennifer and I didn't really talk about what I, what I would share, what I wouldn't share. I'm not going to edit this because I think I, I don't want anything to get lost. I, I think by by releasing it as is, I, I think there's going to be more value. And I'm interested in hearing how my reaction is and seeing what my reaction is when I listen to it myself. But Jennifer, this has been great. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Bullied Brain. As a reminder, neither Jennifer nor I are licensed clinical physicians psychologists or mental health professionals everything we are talking about during this podcast is anecdotal as it relates to me eric jorgensen if you are looking for help or you would like to seek answers to your own questions we encourage you to seek out a mental health professional in your area please do not try to do or overcome any trauma on your own thanks for listening